The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. Well, in Psalm 90, we encounter a stark reality about this life. There, the psalmist writes, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. Psalm 90, verse 10. So we have, according to the psalmist, 70 or 80 years in this life, perhaps more if we're healthy and strong. Yet, as we reflect upon the span of one's life, the psalmist says there's much sorrow, much labor, and then it's soon all gone. He says we fly away, we depart from the land of the living, our earthly lives being over, and we cross over the great river into eternity. This is the reality of life for all men, for those who are endowed with these earthly bodies, immortal souls, nonetheless, made in the image of God. We have 70 or 80 years for those who live a long life, if the Lord wills, and then we fly away. Therefore, the psalmist prays to the Lord later in the psalm, and he says, teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. So in essence, the psalmist is praying, Lord, help us to live wisely upon this earth. Help us to walk circumspectly, making the most of our time here because our days are limited. We don't even know how many days we have. And in Psalm 90, the psalmist then adds in verse 14, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. All of our days, all of our limited days, may we be found satisfied in God's gracious kindness and his faithfulness toward us. May we sing for joy, just an eruption of joy in our hearts, singing to the Lord. That's how we are to live, joyfully worshiping our God. But nonetheless, the reality of death is still there. And so we are wise to number our days. The author of Hebrews brought this reality to bear upon his readers. In Hebrews 9, verse 27, he wrote, It's appointed for men to die once, or to live once, and after this comes judgment. Everyone has one life to live, and then comes judgment. So death, in essence, escorts all men into the presence of God, where we will be judged. The day you die is your summons to court. You're coming before the judge's bench. And when confronted with this reality of final judgment, the day of your death, it's natural for fears to rise up in our hearts as we think about death. Of course, the thought of judgment provokes fear in our hearts. And so does just death in general, dying, the thoughts of, uh, of unknown, what happens after we die, all of these thoughts, leaving behind loved ones, and as Christians, of course, our hope is fixed far beyond death. We don't need to be afraid of death any longer. But for most people in the world, 
They live in fear of death. The author of Hebrews likens the fear of death to a form of slavery that men live under. According to Hebrews 2.15, those who don't share the hope that we have in Christ live their entire lives subject to slavery, to the fear of death. There's a bondage that they have to fearing death. So mankind fears death. We see that. And this is only natural in light of what death is, but we have to remember that death itself is not natural. You see, God did not create us to die. Death is really an intruder into the world that God has created. In the beginning, when God created the world, there was no death in dying. That's before the, the fall of man, as is recorded in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve plunged the whole world into sin and darkness. Before that, there was no death. There was no dying. So death, in essence, is not natural. We are not designed to die. God did not create us to die. We are created in God's own image, and he made us a unique combination of both body and soul, outer man and inner man. And that combination is meant to have an eternal duration. God has set eternity in our hearts. But when sin came in, so came death, and now our bodies die. And so in order to redeem mankind, death needed to be dealt with. It needed to be done away with. And in the end, death will be done away with. As we read this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be abolished is death. Death is the last enemy, it says. Well, one day, everything will be subjected to Christ. Everything will come under the submission of Christ, the rule and reign of Christ. Christ will abolish all rule and authority and power outside of himself. And in the end, everything comes under the lordship of Christ, even death, the last enemy. But as long as death is in this world, as long as people die, God's sovereign purposes for the world are not fully realized. And yet that day is coming. For now... We live in a sin-cursed world, and death is the reality. Seventy or eighty years, and then we fly away. We depart. And so this is the life we live in for the time being. We live in the, the land of the living until we do not, until we die, until death meets us. So death, of course, is a reality we must all face. And so then we need a Savior who can deal with death for us. We need a Savior who can not only save us from our sins, but one who can save us from death. And that requires a Savior who has authority over death. And thankfully, that's what we find in our resurrected Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We find one who has authority over death. But you must be convinced of that. You must believe that for yourself, in your heart, that our Savior has authority over death and does so for you. And I wonder if you believe that. Do you believe that Jesus has authority over death? Do you believe that Jesus has authority over your own death and therefore over your own life? Or are you still in bondage to the fear of death? Does, does the fear of dying cripple you? Are you living perhaps as if somehow you won't be able to, or you can somehow get around death, or you're just putting it off? Perhaps somehow you think that you will be able to defeat death in the end. Or perhaps you're just buying time, putting the thought of dying out of your mind. You don't want to think about it because when you do, it causes you to fear. 
But we, of course, know that doesn't work forever. We have 70 or 80 years if the Lord wills, and then we will fly away. So the clock is ticking for each one of us. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the authors of the New Testament reveal to us much about Jesus' relation to death. We've read some of that this morning. They reveal much about Jesus' relation to death, or maybe better stated, death's relation to Jesus. That's what we see also in the book of Mark, in chapter 5, which we come to today. We find in Mark chapter 5, not a complete theological explanation of Jesus' authority over death, but instead we find an illustration of Jesus' authority over death. So please turn with me there to Mark chapter 5. I'd love for you to open up your own copy of God's Word and see what God has revealed in Scripture about this very topic, Jesus' authority over death. The focus of this section of Mark's Gospel is is simply on Jesus' authority. We've seen that the last several weeks. At the end of chapter 4, when Jesus and his men were caught in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus rebuked the wind, he calmed the sea, and it was a demonstration of Jesus' power and authority over the wind and the sea, over natural forces, we might say. And the point here is made clear in Mark 4, 41. It says there, they became very much afraid, that's Jesus' disciples, when they realized who was in the boat with them. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? They were startled with Jesus' power. Who is this? There's no other man who could cause the wind to stop. Sure, many of us have hopelessly wished to turn the wind or cause it to go away, but such a thought of, Causing the wind to stop is imposterous for anyone but Christ, anyone but the Son of God. Then in the next section, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, Jesus has this encounter with a demon-possessed man. But he's not just any demon-possessed man. He's the ultimate demon-possessed man. He's the demon-possessed man par excellence, we might see. He's got thousands of demons living inside of him. And compounding their demonic influence upon this one tormented soul. But like the wind and the waves, the demons quickly submit to Jesus' authority. In fact, the demons cower in fear of Christ. He is the son of the Most High God. That's how the demons refer to him. So again, Jesus' power and authority are on display as Jesus sends them into a herd of pigs. And then chapter 5 closes with two other accounts of Jesus' power and authority, again, on display. Uh, These two accounts come together. The details are intermingled together in the course of one long narrative. Last week, we considered the the first account, Jesus' miraculous healing of this woman who suffered from years of bleeding. We do well here to consider both of these accounts together and read this full account. So look with me at chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter, verse 43. So look with me, follow along in your copy of God's Word. And when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, And on seeing him, fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, 
My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd following him and pressing in on him. A woman, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that power proceeded from him, had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? The disciples said to him, you see this crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And while he was still speaking, they came from the house and the synagogue officials saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. He allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion of people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a, commo a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk for she, for she was 12 years old and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. When we consider the case of this woman who had suffered from this terrible affliction, uh, we, we looked at this last Sunday, her, her bleeding, my version calls it a hemorrhage. That doesn't mean it was a, a really a life-threatening case of bleeding, but it certainly was a life altering bleeding. It was some kind of severe, ongoing menstrual bleeding that despite all of her efforts, all of her money, all of the wisdom of the local physicians, uh, she could do nothing to be healed and her situation had only grown worse. This had been the process, an ongoing situation for 12 years for her. And as a result, this woman was left in this conditional condition of being ceremonially unclean based upon Levitical law. We looked at this last week, and she would have thus been severely estranged from normal society. And in her desperation, she believed that Jesus could heal her. And so when she saw Jesus making his way through the streets of Capernaum, most likely that's where there were, we were not told, but as she saw him making his way through those streets, she made her way up to him, working behind him, finally reaching out to touch him. We see her reasoning given to us in verse 28, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And immediately that's what happened. She was healed. 
And immediately, Jesus was aware, and he stopped. He stopped on this trip to Jairus' house to interact with this woman. He turned around and waited for her to come forward, asking repeatedly, who touched my garments? His, his goal was to publicly affirm her and, and welcome her back into society now that she had been healed. And that he did. Look at verse 34. We see this. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Her faith in Jesus' power to heal moved her into action. She was acting upon faith. She lived out her faith. She made her way to touch Jesus, knowing, knowing that it would heal her. And that same faith is obviously present in this synagogue official named Jairus. He traveled some distance just to get to Jesus. And he, too, was desperate. His daughter was on the verge of death. There was some uncalled condition or some sickness that had brought her to the end of her life. And when the family heard that Jesus was back on the seaside, it was agreed that Jairus should go to get Jesus to bring him back to the house. We see the faith of Jairus on display in verses 22 and 23. Look at those again with me. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. So there's really no equivocation here in Jairus's words. He knows what he's after. He was convinced that if Jesus would just come and return with him to his house and lay hands on his daughter, that would be sufficient. The daughter would be healed. Jairus apparently was unaware that Jesus didn't need to come to heal his daughter. He didn't need to go to the house. Physical proximity made no difference to Jesus' power. Jesus could heal her from near or far. At the end of John chapter 4, in John's gospel, there's a similar scenario where a royal official's son is also at the point of death. And the royal official wanted Jesus to accompany him back to Capernaum so that he could heal his son and touch the boy. But Jesus simply told that man to go. He said, go, your son lives. In John chapter 4, verse 50, that's all it took. He just dismissed the man, go. And Jesus healed that boy from afar. But here in Mark chapter 5, Jesus chose to not heal from afar. He chose to go. Instead, he agrees to travel with this man back to his house, making his way through the streets of Capernaum. The destination, again, is Jairus' house. The goal is to heal this daughter. And so Jesus knew that this trip across town, for whatever reason, would be worth it. I find it interesting here that this large crowd that was on the seashore immediately leaves and goes with Jesus when Jesus goes. When Jesus leaves, they leave. Of course, we know the, the disciples are obviously with Jesus as well. The 12, they're traveling with them. It was such a large group making their way through a small city. It would have been a sight to behold. I recall that Jairus was obviously in a hurry. His daughter was on her deathbed. I imagine that Jairus would have been fighting the temptation to run. He was desperate for his daughter to be healed. And so in the midst of all these people shuffling to keep up with Jairus and Jesus, then Jesus abruptly stops. Just the fringe of the cloak, uh, his outer garment had been touched, and he turned around, and he calls this woman out of the crowd. And eventually she does come, and 
she explains to him and to all those listening why she touched him. The text says she explained to him the whole truth, her motivation, why she did what she did, what her condition was like. She unfolded this before Jesus and those listening. Now, I can only hypothesize here, but that conversation between Jesus and this woman couldn't have taken too much time. I mean, she probably gave somewhat of an extended explanation here, but the whole interaction could hardly have extended beyond a, a couple minutes, maybe five minutes at the most. But one wonders how those couple of brief minutes would have transpired or would have passed for Jarius as he's waiting for Jesus. I mean, Jarius was a man on a mission here. His goal was to get Jesus to his daughter and to get him there as soon as possible. And now there's this interruption in the middle of the trip. Perhaps it took Jarius a moment to realize that Jesus was no longer following him, no longer walking right behind him. And when he became aware that Christ was not with him, of course, that would have created even more anxiety in his heart. And then to go back and find Jesus in this conversation with a woman would have been challenging for Jarius, with your daughter being in complete need of help. Uh, that brief pause in their trip back to Jairus' house would have been, to some degree, excruciating as they just waited there. But at the same time, we probably would assume that Jairus could recognize that this woman, too, was also in great need. But nonetheless, he wanted to get back to his daughter. I can see him nervously tapping his foot, imagining him. And if, if I would have been there in this scenario, if I were Jairus, I, I think I would have been impatiently considering perhaps interrupting Jesus and this woman. I mean, maybe to say, uh, hey, you know, now that you've been healed, if it's not a problem, maybe you and Jesus could keep talking as we go to the house. Maybe that could work. My daughter's in a terrible way. Don't want to stay here too long. Perhaps Jairus was more sanctified than I would have been, but... But nonetheless, this would have been excruciating to wait here. And it's in this very moment, as Jairus is waiting and hearing this, that Jairus receives some news. We find that in verse 35. And while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Likely, Jairus received this news as he was just standing a few yards away from Jesus, uh, the plural here makes it clear that there must have been at least two in this delegation sent to give Jarius this news. And the message is rather blunt. Your daughter has died. And, and don't bother the teacher anymore. Uh, quite uh, the bedside manner here, we might say. And with such a frank tone, maybe these were close relatives of Jarius. They just come to him and lay this truth upon him, blunt force. And what Jairus had feared has now come to pass. And with no concern or no apparent concern for the father who's just lost his daughter, their concern, the messenger's concern, is for Jesus' time. Don't waste his time anymore. It's all over. That's it. There was nothing more that Jesus could contribute now that the girl was dead. So it's time to just go home and mourn Jairus. Apparently it was some sort of family decision to send Jairus because when the girl died, they knew that they had to go retrieve Jarius, and they send these two or three or perhaps more to go get him. But the, the words here of the messengers did provide the opportune time for this woman who's now been healed to sort of transition out of the limelight. For now, Jesus' attention was diverted from her 
and on to something else. On his part, he was not at all bothered by Jairus' requests, contrary to what the messengers thought, and nor did the girl's death make any difference to him. We see this in verse 36. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. So the man here, obviously, already in this point, has expressed some faith. He was already believing to some degree. He made his way all across town to get to him. But we don't find any recorded words of Jairus. And I wonder how he processed this. I suppose he would have been in a bit of shock. The thought of his girl dying made it probably impossible for him to rationally consider the idea of Jesus' time and not bothering the teacher anymore. But thankfully, Jesus overheard these words, the sort of morbid language of the messengers, and stepped in to encourage Jairus. He says to him, don't be afraid any longer. Only believe. Don't be afraid, Jairus. We say, well, afraid of what? The girl is already dead. The girl has died. The fear has come to fruition. She's dead. But Jesus here presses him to believe. Believe, Jairus. Just believe. Uh, perhaps Jesus, Jer Jairus was here wondering, well, what does Jesus know that I don't? What is he talking about? What do you mean, Jesus? Do these messengers get it wrong? Be believe. What are you talking about? But it would seem that Jairus probably didn't have too long to contemplate this because in a very short matter of time, Jesus started giving orders. Look at verse 37. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So apparently at this point, Jesus sends the crowd home. You can't come any further, guys. Show's over. Head back home. And they had come all this way. Again, they'd been traveling from the seaside until this point, but Jesus now dismisses the crowd. Now, Jesus didn't want the crowd following. And if he didn't want the crowd following, why didn't he just dismiss them from the get-go? Why, why do you allow them to come this far? It seems that he intentionally wanted them to witness his healing of the woman, to bring that whole matter into the public for her affirmation so that he could confirm her well-being now before everyone. But Jesus knows what he's about to do. He's about to raise someone from the dead, and raising someone from the dead would have created pandemonium. And so Jesus says to this crowd, you need to go home. He, he dismisses them, along with most of his disciples. He, he sends all but three away, Peter, James, and John. They're sort of the privileged three here. Oftentimes we see them as the kind of inner circle of Jesus. We know they accompanied Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in the Garden of Gethsemane as well. So now this much smaller group, after Jesus has told everyone else to no longer follow, go home, now this much smaller group is making its way back to Jairus' house. And look at verse 38. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, Jairus, and they saw the commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. So when they finally arrive, which may have taken some time to get there, this noisy, confused scene greets them there. The verb here indicates that Jesus took careful note of the scene. He just sort of observed what was going on for a moment. In the short time that had transpired from the girl's death, now professional mourners have arrived. It was the custom in ancient Israel for a family to show a level of esteem uh, for someone uh, by hiring professional mourners to come. 
uh, with Jairus' position in the synagogue, being a ruler of the synagogue, a leader in the synagogue, he likely would have been a man's of means to pay for these mourners to come. And so according to, the, according to ancient stipulations that we find recorded in the Mishnah, that's ancient document that kind of laid down some traditions of the Jews uh, back at 200 years or so after Christ, it said this about these public mourners. It said that even the poorest husband in Israel should not hire less than two flutes and one wailing woman when his wife dies. That was kind of the standard. If, you, if your wife dies, even if you're very poor, at least hire two flutes and some, some woman to wail for you, these professional mourners. And we see the evidence of this practice going clear back into the Old Testament. In Amos and Jeremiah, we see these wailing women and these flute players who will come. All of this in our culture and context seems very unauthentic, very superficial to hire mourners to come and weep and wail outside the house or inside the house, but that was the culture of the day. It strikes us as bizarre, but this was the ancient Jewish culture. It would have been the norm for them. So here would these professional mourners been at Jerry's house letting out these loud cries and wails. In Matthew's parallel account, he mentions that there were a number of flute players there as well. So that's the scene that's unfolding. Flute players, loud cries, wailing, uh, tears, certainly. And then, of course, you would have Jairus's mother and family members who were certainly grieving uh, of a more real kind, but these professional mourners there as well. And as Jesus enters the house, he addresses these mourners. Look at verse 39. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died but is asleep. Now, it's clear that the girl was actually dead. We know that, but this is, that's again what the messengers reported. But Jesus spoke of the death as being as sleep. He likened it to sleep. And because he knows that her dying will soon be made to look like sleep. Her death would soon look like sleep because he's about to wake her up. And Jesus is going to reverse the verdict of death and raise her from the dead as if waking her up from sleep. But these mourners laugh at Jesus. They began laughing at him, verse 40 says. And then he puts them all out. And he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered into the room where the child was. So along with everyone else, these mourners were convinced that the girl was dead. And they would have been accustomed to the signs of physical death. They would have known long ago she took her last breath, perhaps hours ago. They would have been able to recognize the discoloration in her face. And so they took Jesus' words literally, they understand him literally, and therefore they regarded his assertion as absurd, and they ridiculed him by laughing at him. And the suddenness of their laughter does reveal the shallowness of their cries. I mean, they just immediately change gears from weeping into laughing. They were certain that she was dead, and she was. However, here their presence, and their presence of these mourners and their counterfeit tears, now Jesus says, you're not needed, and he puts them out as well. He escorts them out, shuts the door behind them. And so only the three disciples and the girl's distraught parents get to come into this inner room where the girl is lying, or dead body is lying. You see this then in verse 41 and 42, what happens next. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, 
which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. Jesus was unconcerned here about the potential of being ceremonially unclean because he takes her by the hand, someone who's dead and been dead. This is a a compassionate touch, something Jesus didn't need to do, but he takes her by the hand and he says to her, little girl, get up. Mark preserves the original Aramaic words to sort of vividly recreate the scene for us. And he translates the words then for Greek readers who would not know Aramaic. Most of Galilee at this time would have been bilingual, understanding both. But he says in the original, he says in Aramaic, Talitha kum. Talitha, the word actually means lamb, but it was frequently used of children a term of endearment perhaps for children, and here it's in the feminine form. So it's, it's little girl, little, little lamb, kum, it just means rise, get up. And those two words, of course, convey a, a high degree of tenderness from our Lord. The, the, man, the command kum just simply means get up. Little lamb, wake up, get up. Some have suggested that perhaps these two words would have been the very same words that a father would rouse his daughter up from sleep. Little lamb, time to wake up. Get up. That's what Jesus is doing, and that's what the girl does. He says these words, and she gets up. She gets up. She wakes from her sleep of death. Again, judging by the presence of the mourners, this would have been likely hours after the girl had died. She was not breathing. A brain deprived of oxygen can only last about four minutes before total brain death sets in. So this girl had been dead long enough for these professional mourners to be called and make their way to the house and engage in their profession. All this is happening, and yet now this 12-year-old girl is up and walking around the room. And the obvious result is that everyone was greatly astounded. Peter, James, and John, the mother and father, they're all floored by this. He brought her back to life. She was dead, and now she's alive again. So once again, here in Mark's gospel, Jesus' power and his authority are on display. Jesus subdued the wind and the waves, and then he subdued a, a legion of demons, and then an incurable disease, and now death itself is undone. And see the transition that's happening here in this section of the gospel. And in this display of for force in this quiet intimacy of this inner room, the chief shepherd tends to this little lamb. One commentator has written, Jesus' authority, tough and wild, tough with wild winds and raging demons, becomes as tender as a shepherd lifting the littlest of lambs. That's right. In Jesus, we find immeasurable raw power but we also find this profound, tender meekness. And and then the passage sort of ends in an anticlimactic way. Look at verse 43. He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given her to eat. Very earthly things here. And we think about this whole account. We 
We know that all Scripture has been breathed out by God. It's inspired. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's true of all Scripture. It's meant to equip us for every good work. So we do well just to consider and pause and reflect on this account and ask, what is this doing here? Why has this account been preserved in the Gospels for us? What's, what's the intended purpose of this particular story? Well, we certainly could say this, this whole event and account is indeed very unique. It's unique because, I mean, Jesus here heals someone, raises them from the dead. This was unique because obviously Jesus was on the earth at that time. He's walking around. Today, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory, in his ascended position. He's no longer here on the earth. We know that. Which means we should not expect this same miracle to occur in our lives when someone gets ill and dies. And so this account is not given to us to be somehow reproduced in our lives. Or to expect that we should somehow expect God to work this miracle for us that Jairus here receives. Sure, we wish that thing would happen when someone dies. Yesterday I traveled to Bozeman to attend a celebration of life from my dear friend Danny who passed away a year ago. And Danny's life was suddenly taken from him when he was working out at a gym in Bozeman. Sudden cardiac arrest took his life in a, in a moment. He was, fell on the gym floor and never got up. I mean, wouldn't it have been great if Danny could have received this treatment? I mean, I'm sure that Danny's wife, Kate, would have absolutely loved for this treatment to be given to her, to experience what Jarius received, this great gift. In those scenarios, of course we want this same gift to be given to us. When we lose someone we love and see death come in, we, we want that curse to be reversed before us. But that's not what this is given to us for. You know, this isn't something to be repro reproduced here. It's not, something, it's not something that we can then act out or wish for or hope for. I mean, God can do whatever he wants, and he does work miracles, of course. He can do whatever he wants, but that's not the norm for us to reverse death. Again, Jesus is not here. Death comes for us all, whether we like it or not. And so as we come to this passage, and if we're thinking that we deserve or we should get this same gift that Jairus received, and if we believe that somehow God owes us that, that's certainly going to only further lead us to despair when death comes. That's going to be quite troubling for us if that's what we think this is here for. So it's such a reading of this passage will only produce further confusion for us. But again, this passage is another illustration of Jesus' authority. It's an illustration of Jesus' authority over death. And this passage is meant to display Christ's ultimate authority over death so that we would believe that Jesus has authority over death. And this passage illustrates death's relation to Christ. And this passage illustrates death's submission to Christ. And in the Gospels, this theme comes up over and over again. And it culminates in Jesus' own victory over death, over his own death. In Mark's gospel, we see this in chapter 16 in verse 6, when the angel said to the women who come to the empty tomb, he says, do not be amazed. Are you, you are looking for Jesus of Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He's not here. He's not in the tomb any longer. 
Jesus rose from the grave, which, of course, was his plan. It was God's plan. In John 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus spoke of his own plan. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. That was Jesus' plan. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to die, and I will take it back up again. You see, it cannot be said of Christ that his life was taken from him. No, he, he laid it down, making his authority over death evident. I'm laying my life down. I'm choosing when and where to die and how to die, and I will raise it back up again. He also added, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. John 10, verse 18. And so the point of this is that death is no match for Christ. Death is subservient to Jesus. And Jesus has authority over death. He has authority over his own death. He has authority over your death. He has authority over your loved one's deaths. And it's our responsibility to see this theme in Scripture again and again given to us and believe it, to embrace it in our hearts. So that when we're faced with our own mortality and we look at our own death and look forward to that day, that we would not fear, but that we would trust that Jesus will preserve us through death, that Jesus can save us from death and save us from death in an eternal sense. Jesus' authority over death, understanding it, embracing it, and responding to that truth rightly is what this passage is meant to do to us, how it's meant to affect us to build our faith in Jesus. It's kind of developing Christ's credentials again, that we would trust him. This is what we see in these resurrection accounts in the Gospels. Perhaps the greatest is the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11. In closing, turn over there with me, John 11, to see how explicit this becomes. You know the story of Lazarus. Jesus raises a man from the dead who's been dead for four days. His body is rotting in the grave. But I want us to note carefully Jesus' words to Martha in verses 25 and 26. But let us begin with Martha's words back in, in verse 21. Look there with me. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Here's, here's Martha hoping for Jairus' gift. Verse 23, Jesus said to, your, said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know there will be a future resurrection, Jesus. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Presses it home upon Martha. Do, do you believe? Do you believe this? Those who live and believe in Christ, in a sense, will never die. They'll be escorted into eternal life. They possess eternal life today. Sure, their body will die, but they will have eternal life, eternal fellowship with God, eternal peace, eternal joy, eternal relief from suffering, eternal life. And Jesus' question is, do you believe us? Do you believe this? Do you believe that I have authority over death? And stated so plainly, that's what he wants us to ask ourselves. Do, do you believe that? 
Do you believe that Jesus has authority over death and your own death, which is coming for you? And the evidence that you believe is found in your life, the life that you live. It's those who live in Christ and believe in Christ who will never die, according to verse 26. The living in Christ is crucial. It's those who live for Christ today who are no longer in the bondage of the fear of death. It's those who have bowed their hearts in humble submission to Christ who most understand Jesus' infinite authority over death. You see, if Jesus rightly demands submission from demons, from disease, from, from death, he certainly demands your submission as well, your obedience. But the real the question is, do you give it to him? Do you, do you obey him? Have you submitted your life to him? Or do you just pretend and just kind of go along with the motions? Call yourself a Christian, but your life is not one of submission to the Lord, not one of obedience to him. In Luke 6, Jesus says to some similar people, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? There's a contradiction. Your life and your words don't add up. See, it's at the point of our greatest struggle with sin that your faith in Christ becomes most evident. It's at the point where you're most tempted to disobey and neglect the commands of God. That's where your, your, really your faith in Christ shows up and your belief about who this Christ is really is displayed because our faith is always manifesting our obedience and our submission to the Lord. So it's one thing you say you trust in Christ, that you, save, you say you trust in him to save you from your soul, but it's another thing to live a life demonstrating that your life is lived in submission to Christ because you know that, yes, he has authority over your death and he will save you from your sins for all eternity. So the quality of your trust and the authority of Christ over your life and over your death is demonstrated in your obedience to Christ, how you live today, even in the most mundane ways, how you talk to your wife, how you think about your employer, how you speak to others around you. Those things represent our obedience to Christ. What we think, it reveals our true faith. So again, this is just meant to question our faith, to poke and prod our faith and go, are we resting in him to save us from our sins? Do we truly believe that? And if we do, is it showing up in our life? Is it changing the way we live? Well, let's pray towards that end and pray that that would be true of us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Jarius' life and his daughter and this interaction that you preserved through us just to convince us.